0: Welcome to the seminar series of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative at Duke Divinity School. TMC seminars are a semi-monthly gathering of faculty, clinicians, students, trainees, and others interested in the intersection of theology, medicine, and culture. The seminars are presented and supported in collaboration with the Trent Center for Bioethics, Humanities, and History of Medicine.
1: Welcome to our Theology, Medicine, and Culture seminar. Um, For any of you, I don't know. I'm Warren Kinghorn. I'm a co-director of the Theology, Medicine, and Culture Initiative. and Curlin is on service right now, so he's not able to be here. Um, It's my, uh, I want to thank the Trent Center for co-sponsoring this series uh, and for hosting us here. Uh, And I want to, especially, it's my honor to introduce Dr. Rebecca Todd Peters, who's here with us from Elon University. Uh, Dr. Peters is Professor of Religious Studies and Director of the Poverty and Social Justice Program at Elon University, right up the road. Uh, She has an MDiv in Christian Social Ethics and a PhD from Union Theological Seminary in New York. Uh, she's ordained uh, minister in the Presbyterian Church USA and has participated in a lot of both Presbyterian and also ecumenical um, movements and organizations, usually around uh, social justice and justice-seeking. Uh, she also is the author or editor of at least seven books uh, and the most recent appeared in 2018, uh, published by Beacon Press. Um, she has a bright pink cover. Um, uh, it's titled, Trust Women, a Progressive Christian Argument for Reproductive Justice. And uh, that'll be the subject of your talk today, and we just want to welcome you here to Duke, and thanks for being here with us today.
2: Thanks, Warren, and thank you so much for this invitation to come and have a conversation with you all. Um, It's just down the road, but it's a delight to be here, so thanks. Um, And I'm going to talk fairly informally, um, and I'm I'm really mostly going to introduce you to the book and what I'm doing um, in the book, and then hopefully we'll have some time to talk um, after I finish. Um, So (laughs) I thought uh, it might be useful um, to just... Talk a bit about why I wrote the book um, because I think that's often um, useful information when you're thinking about uh, an argument someone's making, um, you know, do we really need another book on abortion? Um, and that was a question that plagued me for many years. People, colleagues kept saying to me, you really need to write a book on abortion. Um, and I kept saying, but there are so many books on abortion. Is there really anything else that needs to be said that hasn't already been said? Um, and my PhD mentor was Beverly Wilding Harrison. And in 1983, she wrote sort of the definitive book on a pro-choice Christian perspective, but a lot has happened since 1983, um, and that was the piece that that kept plaguing me as mm-hmm. as I was thinking about what her arguments had been, um, and really no Christian ethicist had written any pro-choice books since 1983, so um, it was a, it was an argument that sort of stalled out after people felt like that the the you know predominant theological issues had been addressed, um, but there's still problems in our culture around the issue and the question of abortion. Um, the, the, the things that um, plagued me, that, that bothered me, that, that helped motivate me were um, the interest in the shaming and blaming uh, culture that happens around abortion. Um, and as a Christian ethicist, I think the thing that really pushed me forward to write the book was the recognition of the way that Christianity is used in the argument. Um, and it felt like a Christian ethicist really needed to delve into the way in which the arguments in this culture are being shaped by Christian um, theological ideas or arguments. Um, And so so that was a lot of of what went into My motivation for this Um, and that also really ramped up after the 2010 elections because after the 2010 elections that was when a lot of state houses across the country uh, turned Republican and we had a massive influx of um, legislation at the state level um, that created uh, uh, trap laws a lot of restrictions that were um, uh, interfering with women's access to health care and so that was that was really the tipping point for me Um, so um, I think it's important to think about the, the, oh, yes. <laughs> the context, the cultural context. So this I think is a really interesting poll. I looked at a lot of polling data. I'm very skeptical about polling data, but I do think it does offer some, some information, but, but take it with a grain of salt. This was a really interesting one for me that was done by Pew um, 2013. Um, because it was comparing very similar sorts of issues, but the, the belief in the American public that abortion is morally wrong is much, much, much higher um, than when you think about embryonic um, uh, uh, stem cell research, non-embryonic stem cell research, and in vitro. And, and part of what this said to me was the location of the fertilized egg inside a woman's body is really what's making the difference here. And the attitude around women's bodies um, and pregnancy um, was a motivating um, question for me as I, as I was looking at this. And so even though abortion is legal in this country, there's a dominant cultural attitude that abortion is wrong. Um, and we see this in a lot of ways. Um, these are some of the cultural attitudes that I identified. Um, related to abortion. Responsible women don't have unplanned or unwanted pregnancies. Women who have abortions are sexually promiscuous. Women who get pregnant have to live with the consequences of their behavior. And if you don't want to have a baby, you shouldn't have sex. we could we could spend all hour talking about the problematic nature of these assumptions, um, but but these are very common. You hear these a lot in social media, in the press, when people are talking about um, the issue of abortion, and it's. I think it's important to really think through what's going on behind these cultural attitudes. Where did these attitudes come from? Um, and one of the things that that I argue in the book is that the dominant framework in this country around abortion is what I call a justification framework. And, and I call it that because even though abortion is legal, women have to justify why they are having abortions or why they want abortions. They have to give, quote-unquote, <laughs> acceptable reasons, um, culturally acceptable, morally acceptable reasons for why they want to have an abortion. Um, and we see this, um, well... I'll talk about that in a minute. So, so well, one of the ways we see this, pro-choice arguments seek to justify women's right to abortion, so it's still justification. And pro-life arguments seek to limit or eliminate acceptable justification. So they're real, people are really arguing about um, what we might consider to be acceptable reasons for abortion. Um, and so I wanted to really look into this question of justification and this question of what qualifies as an acceptable justification. Um, and and really, the polls don't ask this, but it's my sense that what this means is four things. I call it prim, um, and that is prenatal health, rape, incest, and mother's life and health. That it's prim reasons that are the reasons that people um, you know, varying to varying degrees. But generally speaking, when people are, are, are back at um, this, sorry, this one, that under certain circumstances, those certain circumstances are the prem circumstances, okay? So, keep going. Um, so it's interesting um, to see that, again, when we have, when we look at, no, that's not the one. When we look at um, more polling data, um it's it, it's pretty remarkable that there's uh, uh, very strong support for, for um, uh, prenatal health issues, rape incest, and even more for mothers life and health, okay? So I think it's important to look at cultural attitudes in the context of women's health care. And what is the data around what is happening, Um, Who is having abortions? At what rates are they having abortion? Um, And how do these attitudes about justification map onto um, women's lives and experiences? So what we find um, uh, is that uh, so this is the attitude, this is the reality. 13 percent of terminations happen for prenatal health issues. 1 percent are associated with rape 0.5% 0.5% are associated with incest, and 12% are related to a mother's, the risk of a mother's life. So that's, that leaves the majority of abortions um, outside of these quote-unquote acceptable reasons. So what we've then created is a culture in which most of the women who have abortions are being shamed and blamed for their decisions around their health care, around their family size, around um, uh, the future of their lives. So right, so 73.5% are other. Katie Watson, a legal scholar, wrote a book recently. She calls these ordinary abortions, which, which I like. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a useful way to think about, um, about these categories. So again, if we think about pregnancy in the US, if we wanna think about why are 73.5% of women having ordinary abortions, we need to have more data. We need to know about what's happening in women's lives. So if we think about pregnancy in the US, every year about six million women get pregnant, 45% of those pregnancies are unplanned. When I first found out that statistic, yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God, how is that possible? Um, but, um, but, but even though even though 45% are unplanned, 60% of those are become wanted pregnancies. So unplanned doesn't equal unwanted. Um, so 40% of unplanned pregnancies end up being terminated. And, and, and if you've, I don't go over this data here, but but you may be aware that um, abortion rates, not rates, abortion um, incidence is decreasing, but the, the rate is the same. So we're, we are actually having some impact on, at, this, this data is probably two or three years old, the, the <coughs> 45%, and it's down from 50% from, a year or two before that. So what we're seeing is that we're actually making an impact public health-wise on um, reducing the number of unplanned pregnancies. So there's a correspondent decrease in abortions. But the rate of abortions has stayed the same at 40%. So I, I think that's important. So so of this 45%, um, you know, 40% end up terminated. That e- equates to 2.8 million um, uh, terminations um, in a year. Um, and that is about equal to this, the population of Chicago, um, just to sort of <laughs> to help you think about sort of size. Um, and the thing that I find or, or I want to emphasize um, in the book and in my work and when I talk is that abortion is a normal part of women's life. Um, and we treat it as if it's not. But, but if 42% of unplanned pregnancies are terminated, um, and that's... Uh, uh, 926,200 abortions in 2014, Um, almost 20% of all abortions end in pregnancy, Um, and 25% of of women will have abortions by the age of of, uh, 45. In my generation, it was one in three. So um, this is a normal part of women's reproductive life experience. Um, And so I think it's important for us to recognize that Um, as we think about um, how we are thinking and talking about abortion, about uh, women's reproduction, about pregnancy, about childbearing, about families. Um, There are larger questions um, that frame our conversation, that help us think about um, the way in which uh, abortion is a normal part of women's lives. So the piece that I really want to focus on as an ethicist is this justification framework and what what moral question is the justification framework asking? And functionally it's really asking is abortion right or wrong, but it doesn't really, it's not really an open question because there's a presumption that it's wrong. Um, and so um, uh, you aren't really asking a moral question if there's an answer to it. Um, and so I'll come back to that in a minute, but I wanna highlight, this is an abstract moral question. And women who are Um, who have unplanned pregnancies have them in real life. It's not an abstract question to them about whether abortion is right or wrong or about what the situation is in their life. And yet, real women are almost completely absent from the abortion debate. Real women who are in positions where they are asking the question about whether they're going to have an abortion or not. Um, And so a lot of what I'm interested in is trying to bring a lot of the data, women's stories, women's lives, um, women's decision-making. There are tons of social scientific data out there about women's decision-making and what they're thinking about and what reasons they are um, articulating about uh, why they have decided to end a pregnancy. So I think we need to um, re-establish the right moral question because this is the question that women are asking is what should I do when I'm faced with an unplanned, um, unwanted, or problem pregnancy? That's a moral question. And that's the moral question that women actually are having to answer in their daily lives. They're not sitting down when they find out they're pregnant (laughs) saying, well, most of them, maybe some of them are. Most of them are not saying, oh, is abortion right or wrong? They're saying, oh my God, what am I, really, literally, oh my God, God, help me out here. What am I going to do? And so it becomes, for women of faith, a very theological question Mm. about, how they are thinking about their lives um, and uh, what they will do faced in this situation. So this is this is one of those studies that I was talking about um, that, that highlights the reasons that women um, give for um, uh, why they are choosing to end a pregnancy. Um, you know, clearly you see not ready, timing is wrong, can't afford are 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 very high, and so again. Um, and I'll get to this in a minute, I'm interested in changing the narrative around this because public health-wise, I am interested in lowering the rates of abortion. I don't want women to be pressured into having abortions if they don't want abortions. I want them to have access to them if they want them. But if there are women who are choosing to end a pregnancy because they can't afford it, that's what we should be addressing. We should be talking not just about a pronatalist approach to make sure all these babies get born, but we should be talking about what is it that women need Mm -hmm. if they want to say yes to a pregnancy to be able to say yes to a pregnancy. And and we don't have that conversation in this country right now. So I also want to move to the point (coughs) where we can say, I don't want to have a baby. Is it okay moral reason to not have a baby? Um, you know, I, again, so the the opposite is forced pregnancy, which is terrifying, right? Um, and, and I talk about this in the book. I remember um, when I was growing up and talking about this with my mother, and she said, "You shouldn't have a baby because you're pregnant. You should have a baby because you want to be a mother, because you want to have a family." And and these are moral questions around um, pregnancy and childbearing and, and family that I think we need to recenter in our conversation. So, um, I, I talk a lot in the book, and I, I, and I won't go into great detail about this right now, about uh, Christian history and the ways in which Christian ideas about uh, virgin mother whore um, impact how we think about women's sexuality um, and about uh, the ways in which these attitudes about women's sexuality um, that come from Christianity really impact uh, questions around um, abortion and and about um, whether women um, are, uh, you know, capable of making moral decisions about their bodies and their health care. Um, again, uh, prostitutes, whores, tempt- temptresses are other, um, you know, sort of categorizations uh, uh, in terms of, of sort of the negative... Uh, uh, message about um, women's sexuality that come from scripture um, you know and, and that's posed against the virgin mother um, which again as we know is impossible right so so as Mary is set up as a virgin mother there, there is no such thing as a virgin mother if you're a mother you're not a virgin right so um, if you're a virgin I mean you can adopt right I mean there are other ways but but generally speaking this Elevation of the idea of um, Mary as a virgin mother has also played a significant role in shaping attitudes about um, women's sexuality and what women's roles are in society. Mm. So again, another piece of just important cultural data is how we think about sex today in the 21st century um, and how that is different from Um, The way in which Christian theology, Christian history, um, uh, a lot of the writings and theologies that are shaping how we think about it, um, how our attitudes about sex differ from ancient attitudes about sex. Um, Sex is no longer, I think for most people, associated explicitly with the desire to have a baby um sex is for pleasure it's for relationship intimacy um it's for all all sorts of things but it is not for most women actually associated with the desire to have a baby how do we know this because the average woman spends 2.7 years pregnant postpartum or trying to get pregnant and 31 years trying to avoid pregnancy so it's really important to know this and to know that most people having sex are not having sex because they want to have a baby. Ninety-nine um, percent of U.S. women use contraception at some point in their lifetimes. All women, Catholic, non-Catholic, you know, all, all women at some point. Um, and so, uh, you know, all of this is relevant as we're thinking about these questions, particularly related to public policy about mm-hmm. abortion. It's also really important to know that contraceptive techniques are not that good. LARCs are great, right? Long-acting, reversible contraceptives have very high efficacy rates. But 50 to 60% of women use contraceptives the month that they (coughs) get pregnant. So remember those cultural attitudes about women shouldn't, you know, or they're they're, uh, not using, they're not being um, responsible, right? And that's a code for they're not using contraception. But 50 to 60% of women are using contraception and still getting pregnant. Um, So that's a hard one. I'm gonna go to, um, well, uh, failure rates increase over time. So when when you hear about the failure rate for a contraceptive, it's usually for the first year of use. But failure rates increase over time. So I have this lovely graph in my book Whenever I do this with college students, they all go. (laughs) 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 Um, Failure rate for a condom is right over here, um, eighteen percent in year one, but it could be as much as sixty-five to eighty-six percent after ten years. Same for or similar for birth control pill, right over here. It's a nine percent failure rate, but it it increases from forty to sixty percent. Diaphragm, twelve percent. In year one, fifty to 72, right? So uh, it's really just, the, this is for the, well, for uh, I, IUD, uh, LARCs are, are much lower. Um, and so those are the, the ones that are just much more reliable. But uh, and, and again, most of the uh, scholars that I have read are talking about the lowering of the unplanned pregnancy rate are, are marking it with the increased use of LARCs, um, that that's really having a, a, a large-scale impact on public health. So um, again, important data to recognize. So then this is the group that really gets demonized. Um, Among women at risk of unintended pregnancy, currently using a method 90%, not using a method 10%. So this is the group that's really, really demonized. Well, if you're having sex and you're not using any method, you're irresponsible. So let's look at why women are having unprotected sex. Well, 25% of them didn't expect to have sex. So, again, if we wanna think about why that might be, um, Christian attitudes that tell girls that they are, shouldn't have sex, and you know, a lot of the data shows that um, the, the women, at least, who are not expecting to have sex and don't have any preparation for it, come from backgrounds where they have been told you shouldn't do this. Um, So they're not being prepared um, uh, for making decisions. All they're being told is don't. um, And then they're not prepared to take responsibility for um, contraception. 12% a male partner objected. 10% worried about side effects. 40% didn't think they could get pregnant. This is a fascinating statistic. Um... And it was a whole lot of reasons why they didn't, like they had had unprotected sex before and didn't get pregnant. Or um, they had been told by a doctor that they couldn't get pregnant. Um, so there were, there were a whole lot of reasons in that category which are just very interesting. Um, and, and then, again, that 10%, there's some who would actually like to be using <laughs> contraceptive, and they, they don't have access to it, right? So they either can't afford it, um, they can't get to a clinic to get the uh, uh, the contraception. Um, they don't have a regular doctor. There are language barriers. Um, or they have difficulty finding a method that works for them because of side effects. So there's all sorts of reasons um, that are associated with barriers to, to birth control. <coughs> so, um, so when we um, Or or when I'm working on this topic, and I'm I'm interested in moving away from the justification framework, Um, I'm also interested in why it's so um, compelling or popular or dominant in our narrative. Um, And this is important because I'm interested in changing the narrative. Um, And so there are um, really... uh, I think I have these in not quite in order, but the, the moral status of the fetus um, is one of the primary questions that comes up. Um, and uh, that becomes uh, really one of the primary um, sticking points for conversations um, around abortion. Um, and this really revolves around three uh, sets of issues, whether the, and I and I, I also didn't like the language of the abortion debate, I don't like talking about Preborn babies or fetus, um, because this, this is not the language that women that I know use um, when they're talking about their pregnancies. They don't call them preborn babies, they don't call them um, fetuses, um, mostly they call them babies. Um, but I think that muddies the water um, ethically, um, biologically, and so I coined the term prenate, and I refer to anything inside the womb as a prenate. Um, it matches with how we talk about prenatal care. I think it's intuitive for um, women who have been pregnant. Um, it's mostly doctors who object to me using this term interestingly, so I'd be curious if the medical people have any thoughts about that. but I think um, I think it's useful to find non, um, uh, hyperbolic terms in this debate and more ways of talking about it that help us have conversations so whether the prenate is human whether the prenate is alive and whether the prenate is a person mm. um, these are three of the things that often come up um, in in arguments um, you know and, and I, I have a I have a whole chapter where I talk about this and I talk about how you know of course it's human right it's, it's not frog tissue right it's not it's not some tissue from some other organism it's human tissue um, whether it's alive, that's, a, that's an interesting question, right? What does it mean to be alive um, and whether it is a person? And that's a philosophical, theological question. Um, and so I talk a lot about the prenate as um, becoming, as in process, as in formation. I use developmental language to talk about it. And I make a distinction between forming life and um, uh, life in the world, um, existing outside the womb. Um, and so the, the frame that I really offer as a new frame for talking about it, it's not one that I invented, it's called reproductive justice. Um, and I wanna talk to you a little bit about that frame um, and why I think it's so important. Reproductive justice um, has three principal claims uh, and they, or, they're oriented around the right not to have a child, the right to have a child, um, and the right to parent in safe and healthy environments. And this frame was actually created by women of color um, in uh, the 1980s. A group of 12 African American women were at a, a conference on Clinton's healthcare policy, and they found that all the rights language about um, abortion um, and access—right, you know, sort of um, access to abortion—didn't fit their realities, didn't fit their communities, the their lives, um, and the struggles that they were having around. Um, Uh, not just abortion, but about pregnancy and about childbearing and about health care. And so they really brought together the idea of reproductive rights and social justice and created this idea of reproductive justice. Um, And it's really, uh, go back to this slide, Um, the right not to have a child, right, that's the abortion right, that's the piece that that they want to forefront. But the right to have a child in... um, communities of color that have histories of forced sterilization is a really, really important piece of this this agenda. Um, And and making sure that um, women who want to have a child have the right to have that child. It goes back to some of the stuff I was talking about earlier about, how do we address the issues that are preventing women who actually want to continue pregnancies? from being able to do that. And then the right to parent in safe safe and healthy environments is also critically important as a shift to a frame that incorporates larger social issues. So what does it mean if, if, if we're a pronatalist, if we have pronatalist policies, and then we don't care about the environments that children are growing up in. We don't care about their neighborhoods. We don't care about their schools. We don't care about whether or not they have access to health care or food, mm. right? I mean, the number of food-insecure children in this country is, for a country with our resources, is is shameful. So so this piece is also very important to think about in terms of what is what does it mean to... Um, talk about reproductive justice and to talk about um, not just abortion but about families and about children and about um, childbearing and about the decisions that that women and and of course I've I've just said women through all of this, most women are making these decisions with people in their lives, with their partners, with their spouses, um, with their family members, with their communities. But this frame, a reproductive justice frame, moving away from the justification framework, I argue that a reproductive justice framework allows us to have a much deeper, more resonant moral conversation about the questions related to childbearing pregnancy families um, in this country. Um, And uh, as I develop a reproductive justice, Christian ethic of abortion, it was, it was important to me, if you remember that slide from the very beginning, the first poll I showed you, where it talked about 49% of Americans said abortion was um, not moral. Um, there was, a, I can't remember what it was, something like 29%. The next largest group said it's not a moral issue, right? As an ethicist, I think it's absolutely a moral issue whether a woman ends a pregnancy. I also think it is a moral issue to decide to have a child, and, and I don't think we spend enough time talking about um, decision making related to parenting, related to families, related to thinking about reproduction and and um, and our community. So it's important for me as a Christian ethicist to um, say abs- absolutely abortion is a moral issue. It's also important for me to say it's possible that abortion can be a moral good. Because right now, um, even in those prim circumstances, even in those conversations where within the justification framework where people are, are willing to sort of say, okay, you know, in some circumstances it might be justified, it's still framed as something like the lesser of two evils, or um, uh, tragic, right? Now, abortion can be tragic. Um, I've had two abortions. My second one was tragic, my first one wasn't. And, and I wanna honor the experience of women whose abortions are tragic. But that's not all women's experience, and not all abortions are tragic. And in some circumstances, even tragic abortions can be moral goods. And so I want to really push us to think more deeply about what we're saying when we say it's the lesser of two evils, or um, how we're thinking about how we frame the decisions that women are making, um, about their pregnancies. So I'm going to stop there, <laughs> and I'm very eager to hear um, what you all have to say or answer questions that you might have. And is there water? Can I get a water? Yes.
1: There it is. So Thank you, Dr. Peters. Um, yeah. We will go until 1.15. I know that some of you may need to leave before that, but that's when we'll end our session. And thanks for making time for a conversation. I want to open it up to the room for questions or comments. And um, I expect we'll have a lot of questions, so I would just say just you know, frame your comment as a question, and, and um, that will facilitate conversation. Yes. Um,
2: thank you so much for the data. I appreciate that. Um,
0: I was wondering how does the conversation get framed around a high-risk pregnancy where it may be a genetic disorder that comes about. Who starts that conversation there? And
2: where did that lie in your numbers? So, for example, Mm -hmm. Down syndrome. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Who starts that conversation? And is there
3: pressure on that couple?
2: Right. Well, there, I mean... No one has studied that. <laughs> I mean, I, or at least I haven't found um, any studies that were seeking to look at um, whether or not... It, so it starts with medical professionals because it's a diagnosis. And so um, uh, finding out about the health of the prenate is something that always happens in the context of, uh, of medical diagnosis. Um, I haven't seen studies that looked at... Whether or not healthcare professionals were pressuring people, um, it, you know, within the standards of counseling, that's not acceptable. That would be unethical. Um, whether or not it, it's happening, um, I I don't. I'm assuming that peop- that medical professionals are thinking it's not happening, or they would be studying it. Um, w- you know, anecdotally. Um, That's not something I've heard women talk about. Um, I interviewed, and and then in my data, I interviewed 14 women who had second trimester abortions all for um, fetal abnormalities. Um, And none of those women talked about pressure to terminate. Um, They talked, they had lots of things to say about their medical care but but there was not a complaint that they felt like they were being pressured um, yeah does that answer your question
1: mm-hmm. question um, I guess I'm
0: uh, theologically convicted with the scriptures and say judge not lest ye be judged and you're quoting a lot of the Reasoning for abortions, and I find that when we establish policies based on someone else's conviction of what someone else's life should be, like well, you haven't walked in that person's shoes, you can't comment on that. I mean, I was wondering kind of what the ramifications would be in medicine if we were to move that, remove the justification for a specific treatment, and I'm thinking of like a different circumstance where like someone wants pain meds, and now they don't have to justify why they need it to that doctor. I, I I'm in, in terms of what your presentation discussed, the um, reframing of the justice mm-hmm. what does that kind of look like, I mean, affecting medicine
2: mm-hmm. uh, globally? Um, I mean, again, I would say that a patient seeking pain meds, it's still a doctor's decision. It's a medical decision about whether someone gets pain meds. Now, certainly their, a patient's description of their experience of pain is a factor in mm-hmm. prescribing those pain meds. But I don't think I don't think that um, the 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 justification framework that I'm describing is really parallel with that situation. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, so if 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 I understand your question, what are the implications of um, uh, getting rid of the justification framework for women's care? Yeah, well,
0: yeah. I mean,
2: I think the justification framework is a cultural framework. Yeah. So I don't think it. I don't think. You know, doctors aren't asking you why you want an abortion because it's a it's a legal right um, in this country. And so, uh, w- when I talk about the justification framework, um, I talk about how it isn't it isn't the healthcare system that's asking women to justify. It's the the cultural context, and it's the state houses and legislatures. It's the you know the house and senate. It's it's politicians I see. Um, as they are framing policy around this. Mm-hmm. That policy discussion is framed within this cultural context of justification. Yes?
3: I was wondering when you think that the prenade becomes a person, like, is it a matter of location? For example, like, if someone's about to give birth to like, 30 minutes ago, was the baby was the prenade, not a person, and now it's the person, um, and like, if you could maybe expound on like what it means to be a person I'm sure it's like a really long thing to like, talk about but I think it's like one of the things that really um, confuses me about abortion is like, yeah. I, I, I find it hard to like mm-hmm. figure out like when does it happen and like why do we now decide because it seems like a really big jump to like not be a person all of a sudden to be a person so mm-hmm. like I'm wondering where you
2: make that jump in, like. mm-hmm. right so personhood is a theological and, uh, and philosophical category um uh and so people have different definitions of that. And, and this is part of why it becomes such a contested issue um, politically. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I argue in the book, I think that, I think that birth is the marker. Um, that uh, it's the independence from uh, someone else's body that marks the distinction um, of a new life, a different life, um, a life that is separate from. Um, and, I, you know, I have, I have a whole chapter on pregnancy. I have a whole chapter on parenting. And the chapter on pregnancy, I talk a lot about the liminal status of pregnancy. Sort of liminality is when you're sort of between states, between worlds, um, uh, where you're sort of... Um, you have, so liminal periods are, li- are like the, the margin of birth and the margin of death, right? So it, there are these places where we're in between. Um, and pregnancy is a very liminal state, um, and it's it's a state where um, women are set apart um, physically, culturally, um, have to wear different clothes. I mean, there, liminality is also a category within religions um, to talk about rituals, and, and, and oftentimes these liminal statuses have rituals associated with them. Um, often they happen around puberty as well, um, the, the, the move from one state to another, right? So, I mean, puberty is actually a really good parallel, right? So you know in in for women at least for girls menstruation marks something new something different you had a body that didn't menstruate and now you have a body that is menstruating um but it's also it 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 it, it's also a a fluid experience a fluid period um just because you menstruate doesn't mean you're ready to have a baby, doesn't mean that you're fully a woman. Um, so so there are these liminal places in life that, that we don't manage very well in, in Western culture. Um, and I think pregnancy is one of those. And I think what we've tried to do in terms of at least our legal approach to thinking about the, this liminal space is to take the existing categories that we have and to put them onto something that I where I don't think they apply. So I think that we we haven't had a really robust um, dialogue about the moral status of the prenate um, and how it, it, it we can value the prenate without valuing it equivalently to a woman's life. Right? You can value things and not value them equally. And so, how do we think about um, pregnancy as something that? Um, is a moral issue whether you continue it or um, terminate, um, and what the associated moral questions are related to that, and 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 what the moral status of um, the developing prenatal life is at different stages as well. So I, I think it's a very complicated question. Yes.
4: Hi, I was wondering,
1: <coughs> in terms of uh, Professor Stanley How I in the class together a couple weeks ago. He was talking about. When Protestants lose Mariology,
3: we lose an important part of, well,
1: an important part of Christ's life, but an important part of other things too. And I was wondering, do you think it's significant that Christ, he didn't incarnate as a 30 year old man in in the Middle East, but rather incarnated into the womb of Mary and then experienced from conception all the way until death that he had time in the womb to, to grow? Is that theologically significant for when you become human or if you're different from the mother?
2: I've never thought about that. Um, Harawas and I have very different Christologies, so (laughs) I'm not really sure what to say in in response to that. Um, I think that uh, for some Christians it it can be a very important aspect of that, but I think that for other Christians um, it isn't. Uh, so I think it's a, there's a wide variety of theologies that I think Christians can hold, um, and I think there's some that are wrong too, right? I mean I don't think that any interpretation um, that one wants to make of a text is uh, legitimate, mm. but I think that there are a wide variety of legitimate interpretations of texts, um, and I can I you know I can see for some people um, that it it might be a significant aspect of their theology.
1: Would it, would it imply that if you don't get full person in until you're
2: actually born outside of the womb, that Christ didn't actually incarnate until he was born out of Mary? Yeah, I don't really have a high Christology, so... Oh, okay. um, again, that, that's not a question that is uh, something that I find theologically important, um, and so I think that for people who do find that theologically important, it would be an... Um, yeah, I don't know what they would say. Mm. <laughs> yes.
4: Thanks so much for your talk. Sorry to be like. That. No,
2: not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> um,
4: uh, I want to put just your comment, provoked me to think I've always found, found it interesting just to kind of scripturally meditate on John leaping in the womb in recognition of Jesus in the womb. I just think that that, who knows? I mean, that's, you know, it was kind of narrative artifice, but, but it. Um, if they're like six months apart as the church calendar holds, which of course is speculative, right? Like that's just interesting to think about um, that rip, that moment of recognition of, of something about Jesus present there. But that, yeah. that's not what I wanted to ask. Sorry, so I'm violating Warren's rule. Question, uh, question. Yeah. Sorry, question. Um, I, I found like the categories of like wanted and unwanted really tricky because mm-hmm. of like the formation of desire that is present kind of co- culturally and socially. And so, you know, like couple hundred years ago, that wouldn't have been a question because women, like, nobody would ask them, do you want a pregnancy, right? Like, it's like, it's a patriarchal society, you need to produce male heirs. you know, just do it, right? Like, in that, thankfully, we're not in that moment, though many vestiges are still present in many important ways. Um, But I'm wondering, like, about, you know, so post-contraception, it becomes a much more salient question, like is this a wanted or unwanted pregnancy? Because the the use of contraception as a kind of social practice mm-hmm. enables that to be a kind of live, a much more live question for people. And so, um, I'm wondering, like, how how to get at the like complicated, like, multifactorial way in which desire, like, the wantedness or unwantedness. So, is it is it um, is it because you don't have access to to free healthcare that it's unwanted, or is it, you know, because we would've wanted children much sooner if we had free healthcare, like that would've made a lot more sense for us, I mean, free childcare. Um, mm-hmm. Or is it like, you know, this just doesn't make sense for you in life right now. Like, I mean, it, it just, um, like the formation of desire for those categories, for me, like starts pressing all these kind of social questions about like, what is the world in which the categories of wanted, unwanted are formed, and how is that world, um, hospitable or not, and how, I mean, even if it's the most hospitable world, you could still have unwanted pregnancies, on the, but but, it, yeah. but it, um, it still is, like, complicated. Well,
2: I mean, I think that's a good point. I mean, in the most hospitable world, you would have pregnancies that were problematic. <laughs> um, you know, a hospitable world isn't the same thing as, uh, you know, 100% effective contraception. Right, that's, those are different things, one's scientific and one's about our, you know, ethos and orientation in the world. So I don't think that the question of abortion ever leaves the human world. It, it, and it has always been in the human world. So you said, you know, 200 years ago. Well, 200 years ago, women were having abortions too. Um, so certainly the circumstances have changed in the 21st century, which is why I think we need to have a new conversation about this. So, so I mean, I think I think you're raising... Interesting pieces of that question in the twenty first century. I, I think I think it's it's um, valuable to talk about you know what do we mean by want and how are our desires formed, but I don't think it obviates the 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 analysis of of how we are shaping our responses to women's decisions um, within uh, within that framework of, of desire. Yeah. Yes.
0: Uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Um, while you were talking about, like, rhetoric and the language surrounding cultural attitudes, I kept on thinking about, like, Emily Martin's article on the sperm and the egg. Um, and I was wondering if you could just comment more on, like, the language that's perhaps so embedded in medicine or, like, biomedicine, all the way down to, like, formation as a physician, mm-hmm. and how that could shape medical attitudes towards kind of the argument that you're presenting.
2: I don't know the article sperm and the egg. What is the...
0: She, she She's kind of cute. So she talks about... Um, how in like biology textbooks we talk about the sperm like attacking the egg, uh-huh, and how that like uh-huh, forms uh-huh. almost like a male dominant yeah. view on it. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. so That's kind of what I was.
2: Thinking. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Yeah, I have a whole thing um, in the book where I talk about. Do you, have you all seen those Life magazine? The very first photos of um, from back from the sixties. I mean, those are so culturally significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and even more than the photos, if you read the text it does exactly that and then there's there's the, there's a that life does another um uh, coverage of that like 20 years later and the language is it's all like alien it's all like about um the alien landscape it's describing the uterus <laughs> the alien landscape and will the sperm make it to the egg and like the woman's body is is this threat to the sperm and it was like whoa so yes, I think language is really important. I think it really does shape how we think about um, the process of of, of right of um, fertilization um, and then what that, that fertilized egg represents. Um, and so I do think the language is, is very important. Um, I understand um, the need for clinical language in terms of you know zygote and 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 um, embryo and um, and fetus, and they are developmentally significant and important, and it's important to have that kind of language. But but there's a lot of language that creeps in as well, um, informally, um, that I think is is problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you have more questions? Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah.
0: I guess so. Um, a couple of us are like medical students. Yeah. I was thinking like to what level do we need to make those switches in language um, to allow this change in the
2: justification framework? Yeah, so I th- that's a that's a really good question because I think this is particularly important for people who are providing health care to pregnant women who don't know whether they're going to keep a pregnancy or not. Um, and even more important when you're talking about women who have wanted pregnancies with, with the fetal health issues. Um, and so the uh, The, the yeah, and it's going to depend too because different people in a clinic setting, whether, you know, nurses, doctors, other staff, some may be using clinical terminology and talking about um, uh, fetus, and and some may be using baby, right? And so the baby language is very morally loaded for um, a woman who doesn't know what she's going to do. Um, it again, which is the reason that I use the word prenate, because I think it takes that moral baggage out of it. Um, I think it would be really useful to use that term in healthcare settings, um, because I think it's a more neutral term. Mm -hmm. There's some questions over here,
3: too. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, sorry. So I was just thinking about how you said, like, the right for someone to have a child or not have a child. So I'm thinking inherently, like, a woman's right. Mm -hmm. I was interested in hearing about your opinion about the male perspective on the topic of abortion in general, like, Mm -hmm. the extent to which, because we know women are absent from the space, especially women of color. Mm -hmm. So what, I guess when we're talking about abortion, what do you think, like, how much weight do you think the male perspective should have at all, regardless of the women, regardless of if the woman's in a relationship or not? Because, like, when I think about it, I think it's, like, my choice, right? Mm-hmm. But inherently, like, if there's a male involved, like how heavily weighted do you think it is, or do you think it's solely still the woman's choice regardless, regardless well, of Well,
2: yeah, I mean, I, if, I, you know, I- again, if we look pragmatically at how women are making decisions, if they're in significant relationships, they're making the decisions together. Mm-hmm. So sort of the abstract question of how much weight that should hold... Um, interests me less than than because I think in especially in the abortion debate, we create a lot of problems that aren't real problems. Um and, and I think it's a way of distracting us from actually thinking about and addressing what the real problems are. So if if there was some evidence that men were being harmed in the decisions that women are making, then then maybe we should be having a different conversation. But I, I don't think there's any evidence of that and I think that the reality is when women have unplanned pregnancies it's stressful right and they're looking to the people in their lives that provide them um, social support and you know, if that includes their male partner um, then absolutely that becomes part of the conversation so you know you have you have there was a there was a bill that was floated I forget in in a, in a midwestern state that wanted to say that parents in law had to give approval right so the father's hmm. parents had to be able to give approval for an abortion I mean and so the level of attempts at at controlling women's decisions I think that's the reality of the problem in the country not men not. Being included in the conversations. Yes.
0: Uh, I have two questions. if That's okay. Um, the first one kind of gets at some of what you're just saying about like social control um, and how that has existed for years and years before abortion was even sort of like officially on the table and officially legalized. Um, so I wonder if you could speak to that in particular, like the racial dynamics of that. Um, and then also in your book, you talk about why adoption mm-hmm. isn't often on the table for a lot of these women who have had abortions or are thinking about abortions Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could speak to that
2: a little bit yeah sure it actually relates to the social control piece so um, adoption was really only practiced widely um, when it was being forced on women when women were being really forced to go into um, this happened a lot from like the 40s through the 60s maybe even earlier than that Where and, and largely white women Um, were there were sort of homes for unwed mothers and when I say forced it was you know not legally but culturally from their families their communities it was a shame to be pregnant out of wedlock they were sent to these homes and then it it was almost impossible for them to keep their children Um, some of the requirements of going into those homes were that these children would be given for adoption and that was then also tied into this sort of um theological uh uh sort of reparation for the woman that if she she had had this horrible sin if she gave this child for adoption to a more um fitting family she could recover her, not her virginity, but her purity. And then she could, only then could she be ready to marry and have a child of her own. So, I mean, really, really crazy things going on. Um, and, and this language, I mean, I, I found it, you know, even up into the 80s in, um, you know, some of Pat Robertson's, you know, homes that he was creating for, um, for unwed mothers um, and the language they were using around it. So, um, so what we found is after Roe v. Wade, um, you know, so into the 70s when, when women had options about uh, what, more options, more access um, to options about what to do with an unplanned pregnancy, um, what social scientists have found is that only about 1% of women place their children for adoption. Um, And that when women are trying to decide whether to terminate or whether to keep a pregnancy, they're not... It's whether they will raise the child. They don't find women who are trying to decide, should I terminate or should I have this child and put it up for adoption? That just doesn't enter into their their, um, calculus. And when when they probe deeper in the qualitative data, what it shows is that the women are saying... um, Early in a pregnancy, this is not a baby, and I don't want this pregnancy. And then by the time, you know, if I were to carry this to term and have a child, then it would be my child, and then I would want to keep it. So there's clearly a moral distinction that these women are making between the moral status of an early prenate and any child that they might give birth to. Um, Hmm. and, And I think that's really impacting their attitudes about adoption. And, and rephrase your first question again about social control.
0: Yeah. So, right. I'm just thinking about like you mentioned the history of eugenics mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm. these these really embedded, like insidious, often white cultural ideals of like how women should be behaving mm-hmm, and what they mm-hmm, should want, that mm-hmm. every child should be a blessing, and yeah. you should want to be a mother, and um, and you should be able to provide for that child. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, like that's just it's so different than like experiences of like women of color and like particularly black women in America so and I, I feel like you talk about that in the book so I'm just mm-hmm. I'm trying to like rethink some of that.
2: Yeah I mean the, I talk about the history of sterilization abuse and, and several different uh, communities of color that again the, 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 that the idea around who should reproduce is, 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 is very influenced by um, attitudes of white supremacy, right? And attitudes around um, who are, you know, who should be reproducing and um, who has the best genes, right? So in eugenics, it wasn't just race, it was also class. Um, and, uh, and, and that dominated the early 20th century attitudes about, um, about uh, who should be having children. You know, there's a a very, very difficult history around Margaret Sanger who championed contraception, um, but also talked in horrible ways about um, black women um, and uh, the reproduction of um, minority communities. Um, I mean, I think also related to this piece, and particularly since so many of you are, are in the medical field, one of the things that surprised me that I discovered when I was doing this research is that abortion was very common in the mid nineteenth century. Um, women had as many children, abortions as they had children. Um it was used as birth control. Um, it was very common, um, and that it was a campaign by a group of physicians um, wh- right after the AMA was formed who were trying to garner um, authority for physicians who they called regular physicians. These were physicians who had been usually trained in Europe um, over against healers or um, uh, people who were more traditional um, uh, 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 medical folk and who might have had apprentice learning rather than the sort of formal training. They saw abortion as a way for them to gain authority, cultural authority, um, that would um, decrease the authority of the other groups of um, medical practitioners. And so they started a campaign that was authorized by the AMA to criminalize abortion, and that is what criminalized abortion in the country, was this physician's campaign. And so their argument was... Um, that there were new um, medical, scientific understandings about fetal development that regular women just didn't understand. And so they didn't understand that ending a pregnancy... um, Often it was referred to as restoring the menses, right? Or, you know, sort of these... So, why we could go down that hole, but... um, The... um, the, the, the important thing I want to, to place about, around the social control is that... And, and it wasn't just, you know, middle-class white women. It was, it was women across all races and classes who were regularly using abortion as a means of controlling their fertility. Um, and the argument that was used by the physicians was um, very similar to the arguments that we see today about, you know, well, they don't have enough information, right? So women are stupid, Right. Um, they don't understand what they're doing. If they knew, then they wouldn't do this. Um, And it was all about social control. Um, And the idea that that phrase even, that abortion shouldn't be used as birth control, originates with this campaign to, um, to shame women to say that they don't understand what they're doing when they are ending pregnancies. Um so I mean just the history of social control around <coughs> women's bodies and women's pregnancies is so deep <coughs> and it's um, and it's clearly racially marked. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes.
3: Um,
1: yeah. Um, I had a question that's kind of related to that. So for someone who thinks of myself as pro life and is always trying to think about what that means. Yes. Um I'm trying to think about situating your argument in a justice framework and think about the just the realities of that 80-90% to of, of uh, pregnancies with Down syndrome are terminated prior to birth. And that um, abortion related to sex selection is a reality, at least in certain parts of the world, and we don't know really so much in the US. Um, I think that a justice framework would hold that those are um, symptoms of a deeper, deeper disorders within mm-hmm. various cultures in our culture, um, related to welcoming people with disability and other things. Mm-hmm. And the question that I have is, like, how do we know that it's just a symptom and not also a kind of contributing um, supportive element, you know, that makes possible the continuance of a culture that doesn't have space for people with disability, for example, or that doesn't have space for girls or, or boys or mm-hmm. whatever. And, um,
2: and how would we know? Well, I don't think we Which can know. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I, I mean, it's certainly a good point. I mean, you're right. That, And I talk a lot in the book about... Um, what we need like I also think that a reproductive justice framework, um, by also saying abortion is a moral issue, um, reframes the conversation to be able to have better conversations about um, the choices and, 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 and when it's a moral choice and when um, it might be problematic, um, and what are the factors related to that. But it also reframes the conversation so we can put more emphasis on what does it look like to support families with people with disabilities in them. And how does that then reshape it, reshape um, uh, the community, so back to the hospitable communities, so that um, families who might want to continue a pregnancy with a child that has a disability, or with a prenate that has a disability, um, has the support to be able to do that. Mm. So again, I mean, I think your question is, how do we know? I don't know We can that we can know. We can know some things. We can look at um, the the narratives of women who are making these disor- these decisions and what are they saying about why they're making the decisions and when you look at those narratives if you want to go specifically to, to down syndrome what you see is um, that uh, well two things primarily one is that um, there's a range of severity um, and there's no way to know that ahead of time mm-hmm. um, and, and that's an impact for people um, Three things, then, but 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 really, the two things—the last two—are connected. A lot of the women talk about um, they don't know what will happen after they die um, to children. That, but, but but that's related to the larger issue about social support, mm-hmm. right? So if if people didn't have to worry about what 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 would it mean, or does this mean that my existing children are going to you know have to step up and take care of um, a brother or sister? Mm-hmm. Um, those are these are the things that that people say about what's impacting their decision um so you know i don't think we can ever know for sure what what the relative you know percentage factors of of those different pieces are but um you know whether whether uh allowing for abortion is contributing versus the justice framework. But I do think that it's important to listen to, um, the, the narratives of women who are making the decisions and, and families, because most of the, de- most of the women who are terminating wanted pregnancies are in couples. Um, and those are decisions that, that couples are making together, um, mm. about sort of what can we manage? What can we handle? Um, what supports do we have? Um, uh, what's the severity of the diagnosis, um, and all those sorts of questions, yeah.
1: yeah thanks. Mm-hmm. I think it's 115. Yes. Did, you, you were going to ask a question.
3: You, uh, it was kind of more of a statement, sorry, mm. I'm going let everyone know. On the reproductive justice, the kind of, the we kind of talk, touch on it, the Right to like raise children in a safe environment, Mm -hmm. and I kind of wanted to touch on that a little bit more because I was reading, listening to another podcast, I know it was women of color talking about how the choice to have children or not, especially in it's not just a thing of the past eugenics, but also currently present now. If you think of like the targeting of children of color, like people Mm -hmm. feel like they don't often have the right to see their child live a long life, and that is affecting reproductive choices as well. So, I just wonder I mean, we're not asking for a full discussion, but just I guess I should read your book about how in-depth you go into that part specifically because I know that is a huge concern Even for me as a young woman, like will I have a child and will they be faced some of the same things? I'm facing this in that stress in general should is it of my choice to go through that during pregnancy whether it's um, Structural racism whatever Mm -hmm. it may be being targeted by police like that's a very big factor in their decision to have children yeah. So it's not just thing of the past for them; it's currently an active thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. I talk about that in terms of that was very much the reason that the that, that third bullet is included right. in the reproductive justice framework that you you just described exactly how the right. women described it that it was an issue of, you know, what does it mean to have children when you don't know um, if they're safe on the streets. Yeah. Um, yes. So.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Doctor, for being
3: with us. Yes. Thanks, all of you, for being here for the conversation.